have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is where we are headed this morning as we continue our way through stories in the Gospel of Luke around the table. At the table, uh, we'll be looking at another meal story today. Luke chapter 9, we'll be picking up in verse 10 in just a moment. Um, but I'll just go ahead and do a quick review of where we've been so far. Right. So a, a few weeks ago, we started looking through these stories in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is always at the table with other people. There's one scholar commentator who described Luke's gospel, that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. At any point, uh, Jesus is always on the way to, or coming from, or at a meal in the gospel of Luke. And this does not just mean that Jesus was hungry, right? Or just that he was, you know, eating a lot. Uh, we, we talked a couple weeks ago about how eating with someone is important. Eating together signifies at least two things. Uh, the first thing is, is just fellowship, right? Fellowship. Eating together is not just a convenience, not just going to a public restaurant and, oh, I just happen to be eating in the same place as someone else. In that culture, and still today, eating with others indicates belonging. Eating together means, hey, you belong here. We belong together. That's what eating together means. It's still true today. I mean, think about the massive social implications of finding a seat in the school lunchroom, right? Or not being able to find a seat in the school lunchroom, right? It is that deep question of, do I belong here, right? And if you find people to sit with, you belong because you can eat together, right? And so Jesus is extending fellowship to all kinds of people. But, but more than that, uh, it's not only fellowship. Eating together also indicates blessing. Blessing. Far more than today in ancient cultures, eating together carries this deep spiritual significance as well, right? Every meal began with words of thanks and blessing, and so in that culture, to eat this food together is to partake in the blessing that had been spoken over it. So, so in, this, in this culture, to eat together is not only to share food together, it is to share God together. It's, you know, it's not just saying, hey, I am with you. Eating together is a way of saying God is with you. Uh, it's not only, I, I see you. It's, hey, I see God in you. That's what's going on when people sit and break bread together. It is this holy communion, right? Which we use that word. And so throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus is constantly eating with people. And it's not merely a social event. It is a deep spiritual event. And Jesus eats with everyone. He eats with all kinds of people. So two weeks ago, when we first started in this, we, in Luke chapter 5, we saw Jesus sitting down with a group of people described as tax collectors and sinners, 
right? These are people who were rejected and despised by religious leaders like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And so Jesus is sitting there and eating with these people. But then last week in Luke chapter 7, we saw Jesus going over to eat at a Pharisee's house, right? He eats with everyone, right? I mean, whose side is Jesus on? You can't pin him down, right? Jesus extends fellowship and blessing to everyone, to everyone. He breaks bread with tax collectors. He sits down to eat with Pharisees. Last week we saw he even welcomes the sinful woman who comes and crashes the party at the Pharisees' dinner. Jesus eats with everyone. This is how Jesus builds the kingdom of God. One table to the next. With unexpected fellowship and blessing at every turn. And so now today in Luke chapter 9, we're looking at another story around a meal. But this time... Instead of being a guest at someone else's meal, Jesus plays the role of a large-scale caterer and a banquet host as he provides a meal to thousands of people. So let's read together Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. And they answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. And then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you are one who welcomes us at the table. And you're one who provides where there is need. God, I pray that as we reflect on the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen 
our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is the feeding of the 5,000, right? I mean, it's one of those classic stories. And, and it is an essential story to the story of Jesus. The feeding of the 5,000 is essential to the story of Jesus. This is the only miracle, apart from the resurrection, that is told in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And now, each one of them tells the story a little bit differently in their own way, but all four of them found this to be an essential story of Jesus. And in Luke, it's one of many stories that Luke includes that revolves around a meal. So today, I want to reflect on this story together and three important themes that it highlights. They are themes of mission, identity, and trust. Mission, identity, and trust. And so let's start with mission, right? The story opens in verse 10 with reference to mission. The very beginning, it says, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Well, returned from where? You know, done what? Right? This is a reference back to the very beginning of chapter 9, where Jesus gathered them together and, in verse 2, sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. So they've been out. They've been visiting various towns and, and villages, proclaiming good news, bringing healing where it was needed. They've been on mission. And so then our passage opens in verse 10 with their return from that mission and, and report. And then two things happen. Two things happen. First, in the rest of verse 10, it says that Jesus took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida, or some translations or manuscripts read near a town called Bethsaida. They're kind of out in the middle of, of nowhere on their own. They withdrew by themselves. That's the first thing that happens. But then in verse 11, we see that the crowds found out where they were and followed them there, right? Followed them. And he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. And so together, this tells us at least two things about mission, about what it means to be on mission. The first thing that this shows us is that mission requires rest. Mission requi requires rest, all right? This rhythm of mission and rest is built in to the fabric of creation. I mean, the whole of Scripture begins, Bill read it for us this morning, the whole Scripture begins with God on mission, creating the heavens and the earth, right? Proclaiming these things out of his mouth. He begins on mission, and then day after day, on the seventh day, he rests, 
right? There's mission, and then there is rest. Mission requires rest. Jesus sent his disciples out on mission to proclaim the kingdom of God. And then when they returned, they withdrew by themselves. Mission requires rest. This is one of the reasons why we gather together every week. It's meant to be a time that we withdraw from our day-to-day life in order to rest in and remember Christ. Every day of the week is life on mission. And this day is meant to be a day of rest and refreshment of restoration before we go back into our day-to-day lives on mission. Now, we live in a world and in a culture that is often all consumed with work, right? I mean, we define our lives, we define ourselves by what we do for work. You know, oh, who are you? Well, I'm a fill-in-the-blank, right? We often say what we do for work. That's how we often define ourselves. Work is often how we measure our success, right? Did we, uh, you know, accomplish something in our job? Did we climb the ladder, so to speak? It's often how we measure our success in life. And, you know, the past couple of years, working from home has become pretty normal, For so many people, which on the one hand might have made it easier to connect with things outside of work, but I think far more often has just erased the boundaries that already existed between the rest of our life and work to make work all the more consuming, right? Work just takes up everything that we do. And this is especially true for people in helping professions. I recently got to participate in a group conversation about healthcare workers, and particularly nurses who have been really burned out. We talked about how, especially over the past couple of years of the pandemic, there are many hospitals that have been operating at, near, or even over capacity which brings healthcare workers to the edge of their limits. And I learned in this conversation that there, there are actually thousands of nursing jobs that, that remain to be filled. And I wonder, you know, why aren't those jobs getting filled? And it's very likely because those jobs are not sustainable, right? They're just jobs that that just lead straight to burnout, 12-hour shifts, too many patients, whatever it might be. People are exhausted, nurses, doctors, and, and others. I mean, if anyone is on mission, especially over the past couple of years, it's healthcare workers, right? I mean, healing was part of what Jesus sent them out to do. That's mission. But mission requires rest. This is just one area of society that rest has been almost impossible to find. 
And this was true before the pandemic, right? I mean, healthcare workers, nurses, and so on have, have really uh, had that, that trouble, but it's been heightened all the more over the past couple of years. I know that some of you in this room have done that kind of work and probably experienced some of that burnout. Another place where I've seen this kind of burnout happen is ministry settings. Right, whether it's churches or Christian nonprofits, church ministries, homeless shelters, counseling centers, all kinds of things, doing good work in the name of Christ, but often work their staff and their volunteers to the edge of burnout or beyond. And I get so frustrated when I see ministries and, and, and other places doing this in, in the name of Christ, right? They sort of baptize burnout with spiritual language, saying things like, hey, it's for a good cause. Or, or they say things like, hey, it's for the mission, right? Because while some may call this, hey, it, it's spiritual service, I think perhaps a much more accurate description is spiritual abuse. Because coercing people beyond their limits in the name of Jesus is not mission. It's destruction. It's a form of abuse in the name of Christ. Churches have done this to people. All kinds of ministries have done this to people. And yes, there is a time to be challenged. There's a time where we ought to be pushed to our limits. And we'll see that in this passage. But the first thing that we see in this passage is that mission requires rest. When the apostles returned, Jesus took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a solitary place we need to remember this if we were to be a people on mission. We have to have moments of rest. But, but then what happens, right? What happens next? In verse 11, the crowds find out and follow them into their place of rest, right? And yet, Jesus welcomes them. He continues to tell them about the kingdom of God. And he continues to heal those in need of healing. And this shows us something else about mission. And that is this, that, that mission is not something we clock out of. It's not something that we just say, hey, I, I put in my time and I'm out now. That mission is not like that. Mission is not a task that we check off. It's not an event that we attend. It's not a job that we clock in and clock out of. Mission is a way of life. Mission is a way of life. We never clock out from mission. Whenever needs arise, we are called to respond to them. Not necessarily solve them, but respond with love and compassion. These two truths about mission have to be held together. 
that, that mission requires rest, but also mission is not something that we just do sometimes, right? It is a whole way of life. Because see, there, there's this need for rest, but there's also this, this concern for others that we have to carry both of. Mission encompasses both of these things. And I think that's what Jesus goes on to demonstrate in the rest of this passage. So in verse 12, his disciples come to him and they say, hey, send the crowds away so they can go to the surrounding villages and the countryside, find food and lodging, because we're kind of in the middle of nowhere here. But Jesus responds to them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. In other words, hey guys, we're, we're still on mission here. I know we were, we were taking a break, we were kind of withdrawing to, to have some alone time, but, but we're still on mission. This is all about the mission of Christ and the mission he has for his followers. And so he says, you give them something to eat. Now, I, I wonder if the disciples' response was with laugh, a laughter, you know, or, or maybe there was a, a tinge of anxiety as they responded. Because Luke tells us there are about 5,000 men in the crowd which could indicate anywhere between 10 and 15,000 people in the crowd. That's a lot of folks, right? And the disciples come up with five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. All right. And he says, you give them something to eat. I can't, can't you just imagine them saying, are you serious? Really? You know, while they sort of anxiously clutch whatever money they might have. Well, you know, can we even afford this? But Jesus doesn't laugh and say, hey, just kidding. Neither does Jesus suddenly become sort of anxiously consumed with all the logistics of what it might be to feed the 5,000 people or, or more. Instead, he simply asks them to sit down. In groups. And he takes what the disciples have, he blesses it, breaks it, gives it back to them to distribute. And in the end, there are 12 basketfuls left over. It's amazing, right? So what is the significance of all of this that happens, right? They're on mission, uh, and, and, and Jesus says, hey, you give them something to eat. And then this incredible thing happens. What's the significance of all of this? Well, this leads us to the other two themes that I want to reflect on. Identity and trust. All right, so, so identity is, is, is this next one. The story, it's all about the mission that Jesus has called his followers to. But the narrative, especially in the Gospel of Luke, it, this story is also about the identity of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? See, where do we see that in the story? Well, you see, the story is not only about food, it also functions as a sort of literary sandwich, right? Uh, it's, this story is sandwiched between two other things that relate to one another. The, the verses immediately before this story 
and the verses immediately after this story are both almost identically about the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is. Take a look. In verses 7 through 9, right before what we read, we see Herod wondering about who Jesus is. It says Herod, the Tetrarch, one of the the four rulers of the region, heard about all this that was going on, and he was perplexed because some people were saying about Jesus that John had been raised from the dead. Others had said that, that Elijah, this great prophet, had appeared. And still others, that one of the prophets from long ago had come back to life. And then Herod goes, well, I beheaded John, so who is this person that I keep hearing things about? Who is this? Who is Jesus? That's the question that we have right before the feeding of the 5,000. Now, fast forward down to verses 18 through 20, right after the story. And almost the exact same thing, just different people, right? Jesus is praying in private, and his disciples are with him. And Jesus asks them, hey, who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples respond, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. See, it's, it's the same thing. Who, who is this Jesus? What do the people say about him? But who is he really? And of course, after the story, Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, well, you're God's Messiah. Well, how did he get there. This story is the link between these two instances of, of wondering about the identity of Christ. So, so let's, let's dig into this. John the Baptist, Elijah, prophets from long ago. What's, what's going on here? This story echoes all of those different people that are listed there, or groups that are listed there, but it doesn't just echo them. Uh, it outsounds them. Uh, it's, it's even bigger, right? So John the Baptist, not you know, just right before Jesus, was in the wilderness. He was proclaiming things. And this story also, as Jesus and his disciples are kind of out in a remote place proclaiming things. But, but what's different? John, in his proclamation, he says, hey, there is one who is more powerful than I am who's coming, right? He's proclaiming baptism of repentance and all kinds of things. But he says, hey, I'm not the one. There's another one coming. And then Jesus comes on the scene and here in the wilderness with a group of people proclaims the kingdom of God and demonstrates it by setting out this banquet before the people. The other thing that people are saying, well, maybe this guy is, maybe this is Elijah who's come back Right? If you remember the story of Elijah from, from 1 Kings, Elijah was this amazing prophet who did all kinds of powerful things. But at the end of his life, he actually didn't die a traditional death. He was taken up into heaven in kind of this mysterious way. And so people went around saying, maybe he'll come back someday. And so, so this thought came, well, maybe this Jesus guy is Elijah. 
having come back. Maybe that's what's going on. And, and there are some echoes of, of things that Elijah did. He was a great prophet. He did many miracles. In 1 Kings 17, one of the miracles that he did was around grain and oil, right? There are these, these jars of grain and a jar of oil uh, that he was able to make continue and last, kind of multiply for this woman and her son. He says, hey, keep using that grain and that oil. Keep making bread. It will not run out until the proper time. And it lasts, right? He provides food for this woman and her son. But again, Jesus goes beyond that. He's providing food for thousands of people in the wilderness. Now, after Elijah, there comes Elisha, right? And he also does some, some incredible things. One of the, the things he does in, in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha manages to, to take some bread and break it up and make it serve a hundred men, right? Uh, very similar to the story. And guess what? There's even leftovers whenever Elisha does it. But again, that was a hundred men. Jesus is doing this with 5,000 men, right? Jesus is, is greater. Another prophet of old that comes to mind is Moses, right? Moses, who led the people through the wilderness, where they received manna to eat when they needed it. And here is Jesus with people in the wilderness, providing food as they need it. But if you remember with Moses and, and the manna, they couldn't collect leftovers, right? If they did, it would all spoil and go bad. But with Jesus, there's more than enough. There's more than enough. And so Jesus is greater than all of them. Whether John the Baptist, Elijah, or some other prophet of old, this encounter in the wilderness with 5,000 people surpasses them all. Jesus is greater than all of them, which is why it's after this story. And Jesus is talking with his disciples about this identity. Peter is able to respond, you are God's Messiah. You're not just another prophet telling us about the one who is to come. You are the one who is to come. Jesus is the Messiah. And so in Luke's gospel, this story is meant to point us to Jesus' identity. This is who Jesus is. He is the one who is greater than John the Baptist, greater than Elisha, greater than Moses, greater than all the prophets who had gone before. He is the one true Messiah of God. And so with this in mind, I want to finish with the final theme. Trust. Trust right? Mission, identity, and trust. You see, in order for our mission to succeed, we have to trust in this identity, that Jesus is who he says he is. It requires trust in him. 
I love, Luke does not include this uh, in his telling of the story, but I think we get it in, in Matthew and Mark, where after Jesus says, you give them something to eat, he then asks them, what do you have? What do you have? And I love that question. I think that's an important question for us to consider. Because it can be really easy to become overwhelmed by the mission of God, right? All those hungry mouths to feed, all of those heavy hearts to console, all of those people who, who need to hear about the good news of the kingdom. And we can just sort of become overwhelmed with all of that. But I love that question. Well, what? Do you have? How can you serve? Notice Jesus does not ask them to provide food for 5,000 people. He just says, What do you have? Well, it's five loaves and two fish. That's what they have. And with Jesus, that's enough. With Jesus, that's enough. And so, well, what do we have? There's, there's a, a phrase that, that I found to be really helpful when thinking about what do we have as we come to serve others, come to, to participate in the mission of God. And I've used it from time to time. You know, every week late, later on in our service, we come to a time where you see on the screen, it says, the life of the church. And, and during that time, there's always invitations to participate in various ways. And one of the phrases that, that I find helpful is, is what we have to bring to the life of the church, to the mission of God, is time, talent, and treasure. Time, talent, and treasure. Right? We, we do take up an offering during that part of our service, right? Treasure is one way to support the work of the church, to, to give to various efforts in the mission of God. But there are so many more ways to serve. There are so many more ways to participate in the mission of God. Something as simple as our time. Giving our time to others. Can we just be present with someone? Can we listen? Can we make a phone call? Can we reach out? Can we be a little bit less busy and able to be present? Can we give our time to others? Maybe there are specific talents, gifts that you have that only you can serve others with. I love hearing stories of ways that, that folks in this church creatively use their talents and gifts to serve others. I think about the many, many quilts that have been made to bless those who are sick. I, I think about the, the folks who need help around their house or, or, or need food or something, and hey, there are folks here who can fix things. There are folks here who can cook things, right? Those are special talents, ways to serve one another. Many of you uh, gather together every month to help put together a meal to bring to the Genesis Project, right? We're doing that this week. That's a talent. That's a way to serve, right? There are countless ways. What do you have? 
time, talent, treasure? What are the things that you have to offer, to bring? It's not a matter of, oh, I need to solve all of these problems. I need to fix everything. Don't get lost in the 5,000 or 15,000 that might be out there. Five loaves of bread and two fish is enough. And that's what I love about this story. That Jesus, in verse 16, takes the five loaves and the two fish. And it says he gives thanks. Other translations say he blessed it. He gave thanks. He broke them. And then he gave them back to the disciples to distribute back to the people. And the great writer and, and uh, re reflector Henry Nouwen uh, takes these words and says, this is what the life of the people of God, the life of the beloved looks like. We're a people who whatever it is that we have, we offer it to Jesus and Jesus takes it. He blesses it. He breaks it, and he gives it back. What do we have? Can we let Jesus take that, bless it, and give it back to us to distribute out to everyone? Because what, what you have is enough. If only Christ blesses and turns it back to you. And in the end... There's 12 baskets left over. That's a basket for every one of the disciples. Isn't that amazing? As they trust Jesus to do what he does with what they have, there's more than enough. And so as we live in the mission of God and, and know and affirm the identity of Jesus, May we be a people who trust. What we have is enough, so long as we trust him and let him use us with all that we have. And so I continue to challenge you all as I have the last few weeks. You don't have to save the whole world. Invite someone over for a meal. Break bread together. This is how the kingdom of God is built. May it be so. Amen.